Hello. Hi. <laughs> welcome. Welcome back to Pop DNA. This is part three, I believe. Yeah. Of yes, it even says it in our notes. Part three hey. of our Bridgerton <laughs> discussion. And we have another guest. Yay! We are so excited to welcome Sanjana. Hello, hello. Thank you for hey. having me. I'm excited to chat. Yes, thank you for coming. We're so excited. So I, oh, so this is not in the notes, but I think we should let everyone know that Sanjana has an incredible book talk account. Yeah. And you should go check it out. <laughs> yeah. You're very kind. <laughs> Can you can you tell the good people about your your TikTok username so they know where to find you? <laughs> yes, it is at Baskin Sons. So Baskin like Baskin Robin. Um, and then S U N S. Excellent. Yeah. Please go watch her videos. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So I definitely I think I said this already, but I have been wanting to like be able to sit down and chat with you for quite some time now because I just love all of your content so much. Like, yeah, it's incredible. You are very kind. Um, <laughs> right back at you. I'm so excited to talk to you like a real person and not just the <laughs> comment section. Right. About time. <laughs> yes, definitely. We are talking about Bridgerton, but uh, you also talk a lot about um, historical, ro- well, and I guess just romance in general. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about like your journey of reading romance? Sure. I've thought about this a couple of times. I feel like reading romance was built into my DNA because I'm like a first gen immigrant or 1.5 gen immigrant. And sure. I grew up watching Bollywood and Bollywood is like the, it's the film genre of love. And yeah. so love stories are like baked into my DNA. It's like the marriage plot is like primordial. (laughs) It's like fully entrenched in my brain. And I don't think I really read romance until I was much older. I didn't even read a whole lot of YA romance besides like the typical stuff about, or like Twilight, you know, in middle school, Vampire Diaries. And then college (laughs) and like late college is when I really was like, why don't I just read romance? I, because I mostly just didn't know it was a genre. I don't know if sure. that was anything that like happened to either of you or if you read romance, but like a lot of times it's just sort of relegated for like middle-aged to older women. And that's totally fine. But I just didn't think it was real until like college. I was like, oh my God, everyone goes around reading like highbrow classics all the time. I just it was beyond <laughs> my understanding. Um, and then I like finally just picked up a romance novel. I think the like special interest in historical was probably forged out of like my mom's own love for period pieces growing up. Like she was a 1995 Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth person, like facility, nice. Emma, <laughs> Shakespeare. Like we watched so many growing up. Um, and I think there's something about the like British colonial influence I'm sure that has to do with her interest in it but also like something of the it was the it was the genre of mainstream media that wasn't like so American as to be alienating to her so like it was the form of media that I grew up with and I think that 
plus all of my like sort of budding thoughts about like the immigrant experience as laid on top of historical romance, but we can get into that another time that I think like, yeah. <laughs> me towards that genre. So that's a really long answer for your very concise question. Um, <laughs> but basically I feel Not like I've all. been doing this for a long time. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's so like, yeah, that is really, we will definitely talk a little bit more about like the British colonial yeah. um, influence in historical romance, specifically in Bridgerton. So would you say that you read more more historical romance than contemporary? Yeah. Well, so I've thought about this a lot more recently, but especially since joining Book Talk, I think it would be probably a relatively even split. Oh, okay. But in terms of what I enjoy more and like when I rank my favorite romances, I think I more instinctively gravitate towards historicals. Sure. But at least early in my romance reading journey, I like really got things kicked off with historical. Um, and I still would consider myself more of like a historical romance fan personally. Samezies. <laughs> I wanted to just kind of like look at like a very, very brief snapshot of like the history of historical romance just to kind of get a sense of the context that Bridgerton is sort of coming into, like the books and the TV series. So we actually ended up talking about this a little bit with our guest last episode, Nicole, specifically with Regency romance. We see like, I'd say like 85% of that influence is coming from the works of Jane Austen, like yeah, you know this still, you know this still ever present cultural love for Jane Austen and the time that she lived in. I think is where we're seeing the popularity of Regency romance really getting a lot of its steam. I guess. I think something that stands out for me is the how integral gossip is to everything. Mm, right, the conversation about other people is so critical to moving the plot to framing it to like building the world it, it gossip is at the core of these stories right yeah that I think is the biggest tie that I see because it's not necessarily written as like what we think of as gossip obviously in Austin's works but there's a lot of conversation about like who ran off with who and who mm -hmm. hurt who and who backstabbed who and what we heard about their reputation and like what that means for them. Like reputation being of that utmost importance is, yeah. I mean, it's very literal in Lady Whistledown, but I, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think also how our characters react to the gossip and how much they take the gossip seriously kind of continues that conversation too because we get the importance of the gossip as a vehicle for us as a reader or a watcher but we also get the lens of who these people are based on how they react to it which I always found really fascinating yeah the character work of it is I think really valuable like yeah. it matters not just who other people think you are, but who you are in response to their beliefs. Like right. Memory, right. I think a really good example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's so interesting to to see it through, to see, you know, see it through the element of that, like, gossip and how important that was to, like, your social capital. Yeah. Um, but, like, if you have 
if you have dirt on someone or someone has dirt on you and like how important reputation is in this time period that like, I mean, like in Pride and Prejudice, like, you know, Lydia runs away with Wickham and like the family is ruined, but then they're saved once Lydia and Wickham get married. Like, (laughs) right. It's so interesting. Just like these very specific like status levels and how you can go up and down depending on, uh, you know, these like tiny little things. It's so interesting. And I think we we do see that in Bridgerton too. Go ahead, (laughs) Erin. Oh, sorry. No, I was just agreeing. And I, not to mention, it almost doesn't even matter if it was true or not. Someone said it and that makes it valuable, but it could it might not have even been true or you might not even have the whole story you usually don't you know right. it's upsetting deeply mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> definitely yeah so like i didn't have like a whole lot to like dig into with the with the history of regency romance um except you know like my knowledge doesn't go very deep either <laughs> but um uh i did read like some georgette hire who i think is kind of like the mother of Regency romance. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. Have you read any of hers? No. So I I feel like I should. Honestly, it's <laughs> a shame that I haven't, but also maybe not because I was so put off by the fact that she's apparently like a raging anti-Semite. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so right. I didn't really flock to a lot of her books. I, this is definitely like a gap in my historical knowledge is that I don't read a lot of like bodice rippers and like earlier historical romances. Like my historical romance backlist starts in like the late nineties, probably like 95 onwards. And so I don't even have a huge background on like these like heat, like giants of historical romance, like Judith McNaught and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jude Devereaux and some other folks like that. Uh, but I am very aware of like Georgia Hire's like influence in converting mm-hmm. Jane Austen into something that's like more, I guess, less of sort of general social commentary and more of like romance as we know it. Yeah, like right. Catered to women. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also interesting to note that like Jane Austen was writing contemporary fiction at her time. And so, like, for Georgette Heyer, like, setting it in this historical period is a part of what she's trying to do and what she, like, if there is, if there is any kind of social commentary, it's rooted in that historical setting rather than right. being about the contemporary time um, that she lived in. So, yeah, it's interesting to think about. I haven't read any Heyer in quite some time. I've kind of, like stayed away from her as you know like as I realized like all of the you know all of the issues with her ideologies um but yeah I think it is interesting to think about her as sort of like a uh, a milestone in historical romance especially when we're looking at like how popular I think I think probably partly because of the Bridgerton TV series, um, I think we have kind of seen like a surge in popularity in historical romance um, the past couple of years. I don't know if if that's like me reading into it or if that's really true, but um, 
I think that's part of the Bridgerton effect. Yes, I would totally, I totally agree. I don't have like a lot of empirical data to back that up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that at least like following the Bridgerton show's release, Regency core was one of the big fashion trends. Yeah. For fashion week. So there's something about the aesthetics of consumption that the like Regency era puts forth, like with all of the glamour of balls and these like really spectacular outrageous gowns and textures that I think itself is evidence of growing interest in that I also I don't know if I mentioned this before but I'm a grad student in psychology right now and my space is um like intimacy studies and like sex and gender and well gender women's health and stuff like that as well my I have no idea what my research interests are ultimately going to be but that's amazing (laughs) thank you thank you um (laughs) But it's something I've been speculating on a lot is like this rise of difficulty with like intimate relationships that we have societally and how maybe this resurgence of interest in historical romance on like these very established fixed conventions of what intimacy should look like, both when it comes to like dating and courtship, but also like sex and pleasure, I think is I think it's growing more attractive to people who feel like the rules have become the, like our current dating rules have become untenable for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. I do think there's an explanation for this perceived phenomenon on a variety of levels, but I couldn't tell you if that's just because like we're entrenched in it or if it's like an actual reality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of had the same, I was wondering the same thing. Like, is it just because like, that's like the, like in general, that's the content that I'm going to seek out and that's why I'm seeing so much more? Or is it truly like, you know, in, in our cultural consciousness, like we're, we're, um, we're seeing more interest in historical romance, but I don't know, maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe it's... (laughs) True. Yeah. Maybe we should just enjoy it. Um, <laughs> Sanjana, I don't know. Have you read all of the Bridgerton books? I have read all of them except for the last two. I haven't read Hyacinth okay. and Gregory's book just yet. Um, okay. And it's been like three years since I read the rest. Okay. Except for what I'm doing right now for my read along. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I was watching some some of the videos you did for your read along. That's that's a really fun idea. Um, yeah, really. Yeah, awesome. so I've read, I read the first one, and then like the first few chapters of the second one. So I don't really have a good, uh, that good of a base for the books. Um, just at you know, like at least not firsthand. Um, but I think. I kind of wonder, so I think this is actually something you brought up in one of your videos, like, what was it about the Bridgerton books that made them a choice for adaptation versus, like, other Regency romance or other historical romance books? So I don't know if, I don't remember if you ever came to a to a conclusion about that, but I'm still kind of curious about that too. Oh my gosh. I don't know if I have <laughs> like a set thesis about it. I think, I, I'm sure both of you know that like Shonda Rhimes wrote Princess Diaries 2, the Royal Yeah. Yacht. We've discussed we it at length. We love her so much. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, that movie imprinted on me in a way I will never be the same. There's only me 
pre Nicholas Devereaux uh, <laughs> time and post the best Chris. He's the Literally. best Hollywood Chris. I say the Absolutely. same thing all the time. Sorry, this is totally a tangent and feel no, free to shut me up. But did you guys ever see that thread? of someone who was teaching like one of those intro seminars at UC Berkeley and it was about like the the politics or like the aesthetics of writing erotica or erotic fiction and Chris Pine apparently took the class in college <gasps> what? Like, surveyed it, was incredibly respectful a very thoughtful writer wow and just, like continued about his day like he was just and I was like this is it he's the man for me All right <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> And so that's, that's my that's my rationale for why he's like the best Chris. That plus he's always yeah. like spotted buying store or like buying books at indie bookstores, which like sure, yeah, yeah, support indie bookstores. Come we on, we love to see it. Yeah, <laughs> but yes, I like so the the thing about her having written Princess Diaries and also like the landscape of like. Grey's Anatomy and Scandal and all of these like mm-hmm, yeah. ensemble cast shows I think those two things just layer right on top of each other the at least her interest in in Bridgerton but then when I think mm-hmm. about Bridgerton as being a really good candidate it's the like family of it all right I honestly right. here's the thing I'm not sure Aaron have you read the books no <laughs> I'm not that cool no, no, I, I really don't know that you're missing out, to be honest. Yeah, I would ag- I would agree, just based on the one and a half that I've read. <laughs> I'm down a wheel of time tornado, so that's where I'm at right now in my life. But anyway. I would love to hear how that is going. Um, I, I just, like, there is, it's so interesting because the best parts of the Bridgerton books are when the siblings are talking to each other and not their lovers. Yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so good to each other like the sibling dynamic the family dynamic the comedy of it all and I think it gets smarter and more deft with each passing book but their relationships with each other are the most compelling parts of the books which is why my favorites of the series are the ones where the siblings are not there because then there isn't as much competition Mm, sure with the romance but I do think that that makes for a really compelling Shonda Rhimes-esque show is First of all, the dialogue. And second of all, she excels at putting a bunch of people on a screen and they yeah. together, right? Rather than the like really close hold intimacy of like just two people, which is why I'm like interested for Benedict Eloise and Francesca's stories in the series. But that's my working hypothesis. I would love to hear if you both have <laughs> as well. Yeah, I don't know. So like, yeah, I definitely agree with you about like the family aspect of it. Like they're yeah. a big, you know, they're a big kind of rambunctious family. And that's always, you know, a good, uh, a good formula for a TV show. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I just... Another thing- Yes, go on, go on. (laughs) Oh, I was just going to say another thing that we kind of talked about a little bit, but not enough is the idea of like messy people, like no one. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like you see that a lot in Grey's Anatomy specifically. I'm like, I don't think anyone's really the hero in that, you know, like there's a lot of, of mess there. And I think that can be said of a lot of Bridgerton as well. Like not, there's no clear, like good guy to me. I feel like there's messy people, which I think is what um, Shonda Rhimes is interested in, in a lot of her work. 
Yeah. yeah, I can see that. Yeah. It's interesting because sometimes Julia Quinn's heroes uh, are characterized as like nice guys or like less of like the alpha stereotype, which is interesting because Anthony is a menace to society. <laughs> I don't <laughs> like him at all. He's just like toxic masculinity wrapped up in one person. But I mean, a lot of her characters are, they're generally classified as likable. But I wonder if that's like more of an opinion that was held when these books were published in the early 2000s. Because the more I read them too, I totally suck in this thing of them being like morally ambiguous and complicated characters. Mm -hmm. Especially like as you get to know more of them over time in the background of other books. But yeah, I agree. Yes, there's a lot. They're they're kind of like, they feel like unfinished in a way, in the way that like real people are unfinished. If that right. makes sense. That like, yeah. you're like, we're never fully done as people. And I think that's kind of how it feels. And, that, and like, and that's why we're messy sometimes is because like, yeah. we have loose ends. That's interesting. But the reason why I asked that question um, (laughs) about, like, why out of all of the possible um, Regency romance series, why Bridgerton was chosen is because the Bridgerton books are, they're kind of a big name in historical fiction. Maybe I just don't know enough. Uh, or I, I guess I should say they're a big name in historical romance. Um, yeah. But I just don't know enough, I don't think, yet about the history of historical romance to understand, like, how big of a deal they are. Um, right. Because I feel like there are other, like, series that could be said to be just as, like, established within the genre. But I don't know. I found this <laughs> interesting article i think about like the top 100 romances pulled by all about romance in the year 2000 like right before okay um right before bridgerton's was published in 2002 but i think julia quinn had a couple of other novels out and looking at that list there are several on there that i love like i'm a huge lisa kleypas stan and she had like dreaming of you which is one of her most like famous works and a couple of others um loretta scott uh her um Lord of Scoundrels which is like like a seminal historical romance novel was published Mm, here yeah or like ranked really high that year Outlander yeah Mm -hmm. Laura Kinsale's Flowers from the Storm a few other like Susan Elizabeth Phillips like a, a lot of these like big authors rank really highly um in the year 2000 and when I think about Bridgerton in comparison to these I think part of it is that makes it really stand out is the connected family narrative okay and also when I think about like current candidates for adaptation there is obviously the deeply controversial and problematic in my opinion scene in the Duke and I where there is like assault on screen Mm -hmm. but I think in comparison to the other books of the time it's relatively not egregious when it comes to consent violations, which is sure. bananas to say, <laughs> but is in fact a reality. Like when I think about some of these, I, I mean, Outlander was obviously adapted and the yeah. issues are numerous in that as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
I, I think honestly, some of that is just like a practicality thing. Like some of these stories, I think were able to age better. I wouldn't necessarily say Bridgerton has aged like incredibly, but it had more potential than some of its peers probably tied with like the big dynastic family thing of it making it a good Shondaland mm-hmm. uh, addition. I think probably that that's, that's what occurs to me at least in comparison to its peers. Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely makes sense. So kind of like in that same vein of like the Bridgerton books, like sort of in the context of the larger genre of historical romance. I know that we definitely do see a lot of the, especially for like the early 2000s, we see a lot of like the common tropes and conventions that we saw in a lot of historical romance at that time. Um, But I wonder if they're like, I mean, you kind of touched on how they differed from um, from other romances of the time, but like, are there ways that they sort of like subverted or like kind of went against like what was expected in a, in a historical romance at the time, like beyond sort of like the, you know, like the issues of like consent or like the gender roles, like, I guess, is there like a significant way that they subvert what you would expect from a romance of the time? That is a really interesting question. And I sometimes wonder if maybe the issue is that I found them unremarkable. Like Hmm. the issue is not so much that that isn't the case. Like it did, it wasn't subversive in some way. It's that I find it difficult to see if it was because they are not my favorite books. I'm curious to see if like, as I complete a reread of the series, that does become the case, but I just, I mean, in some sense, I do think it's a good introductory series. Like you get a little bit of every trope, you get Mm -hmm. all of these different kinds of couple dynamics. You get like an epistolary novel, you get like the framing of Lady Whistledown. there's, There's so much there to, there is like fertile ground in terms of tropes. So there is something for everybody. like ways that this series is subversive. I really struggle with figuring out what that might be because it's far and away, like not my favorite, which is limited. But I, I I wonder if that's part of it. I'm sure there's like a Julia Quinn scholar out there (laughs) (laughs) currently. And I would love to be taught, but I think I find it limited to really understand why it like caught yeah. hold the way that it did because it yeah, really right. is like a juggernaut of like a romance series. <laughs> it yeah. was like a huge phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. And I kind of, I also kind of wonder why it was as big as it was. Cause like, yeah, I would agree at least with the first, I, again, I'll reiterate, I've only read the first book, but, um, but yeah, I would agree that like, I didn't really find it that remarkable. I really only read it because I knew that the show was coming out. (laughs) So Yeah. yeah. And I, and like, I love historical romance. Like I'll read a historical romance any day of the week, but yeah, to me, it, it didn't feel like it was especially like, like it didn't stand out. Yeah, like it didn't feel like it subverted anything, any expectations like it, um, which I mean, I don't think that people really read romance to have their expectations subverted, (laughs) but in general, um, but yeah, I just, 
yeah, I just kind of wondered about like if there was anything about it that that stood out that I'm missing, but <laughs> but maybe also, not. For the two of you who have read and also watched the show, is there is that the also true for the television show or is there something that makes the show stand out more i'm curious Rhonda, i'm not sure what your thoughts are on this but i have to say i actually think the show does a really good job of catering to a romance reader so i think it's Mm. remarkable alongside like all of the other period pieces because it strives a lot less for like a literary quality or Mm -hmm. Um, something like highbrow in service of something that is like meant to be like joyful and fun and satisfying. Sure. And period pieces, I think, are made serious all the time. Yeah. But like, yeah. is its best when it is almost this like unself-aware, joyful expression, in my opinion. And like, critical analysis of colonialism and other things aside, which I can obviously <laughs> talk circles about. But <laughs> I think that is something that was like really rich in the show is its willingness to be like, this is going to be so fun to watch and it's going mm-hmm. to make very little sense within itself. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that is what is almost subversive about the show is that it doesn't even pretend to be uh, like sense and sensibility in the mm-hmm. 90s or, or pride and prejudice 2005 or, you know, it, it just doesn't pretend to be that because it, that's not what it's meant to be. Um I, love I don't that. know that you get that a ton, but you yeah. have, we have seen more of it. I don't know if either of you have seen Dickinson. Um, yes. I love that show. That is also like uh, only gingerly handling Emily Dickinson's. Right. Right. <laughs> right. But it's like fun. Like it's kind of mm-hmm. insane and great, but like it, I, I think that kind of media is relatively new like the ariana grande um cover in cello is, is right like, <laughs> yeah sort of delightful and ridiculous and exactly what it's supposed to be yeah i think the great kind of does something similar in that it's not it's a period piece that's not trying to be like a period piece you know and all three yeah. are really new all three yeah. within the past like five years yeah Yeah, I would – that is an interesting question because, like, I would – like, my mind immediately thought, like, like in what way is Bridgerton, the TV series, you know, subverting expectations or whatever. I can't think of another adaptation of a historical romance novel that I have seen on screen. I don't think I've seen one. Right. Outlander, sure, but is but is Outlander a romance though? I don't know that I would. Cla- I mean, maybe. I guess it's talked about with other romances, but I don't think Diana Gabaldon identifies it as a historical romance. But like historical romance readers will claim it for their own. Okay. I don't fully okay. know, but I Fair think enough. it's the closest. It's the closest, probably. Sure, it's the closest, but it's it's definitely lacking in. Maybe not, maybe lacking is the wrong word, but it's definitely not nearly as like lighthearted as Bridgerton kind of ends up being. Like it's, it's not, you're not going to watch Outlander to, for like a fun escape, you know, like you're going to watch Outlander and cry, like, right? (laughs) 
I don't know. You might you might have cried when you watched Bridgerton. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting to think about, too. And I wonder if maybe this is already happening. Like, I wonder if this will inspire like more, not just romance adaptations, but historical romance adaptations. Oh, I would love. <laughs> that would be. Yeah. Nice. Honestly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that'd be. I'd be excited. Oh, we came to the fun question. Yes. Um, so this is something that we we touched on a little bit, actually, in two both of our two yeah. previous episodes. And we've alluded to it here as well about historical romance being largely, you know, very white and very heteronormative. And then also, as you mentioned, Sanjana, kind of romanticizing like colonialism and sort of glossing over the realities of like white supremacy. Yeah. Um, and then in the case of Georgia Higher, just outright containing like anti-Semitism and racism. Um, so I wondered if we if if we see the Bridgerton TV series, I do think that we see it address these critiques in a way, but I kind of wonder like how first of all was it an was it intentionally addressing these critiques and then second like how do we feel about how it addresses those things oh my gosh <laughs> did i just open a can of worms <laughs> oh, no, no no i well maybe <laughs> so from the thing about like historical romance is like romanticizing colonialism my perspective has always been that like most historical romance I think should take the perspective that it is writing fantasy and not historical fiction first of all because I don't think it's fully prepared to address colonialism or race in ways that it should um and I also don't think the audience of writers of historicals are adequately prepared to confront that right like the bulk of these authors are white women from relatively privileged backgrounds and I don't know that that's necessarily that most of them have the background to address something like partition and like Mm -hmm. other huge issues that are taking place I mean, not directly alongside but alongside a lot of these narratives Um, so I, I tend to favor that approach for a variety of reasons I think that's partially why I was disappointed in how the show handled race and colonialism mm-hmm. is because when you abandon the race blind approach or what they call the color conscious approach, it, it, they open a can of worms, right? Like yeah. They have to for start sure. creating compelling explanations for these things and no explanation, like the sort of retconning of regency era colonialism is not something that will ever be successful and is like maybe not outright harmful because I don't know how many people are watching the show and taking it as a history lesson Mm. but it is sort of flippant I think it's like too flippant Um, right yeah or at least that's where I stand on it I'm not sure if either of you had thoughts to the contrary yeah I did feel like it was I mean, and obviously coming at this as someone who's white, this isn't, you know, my arena to like have an expert opinion, but it did feel like it was sort of tacked on, like they, 
I feel like they could have just left it at that this is just race-blind casting. We're not going to address how I mean how race affects people's lives in this world. Like we're just this is just an entire like fantasy world where, you know, there there's perfect racial equality and we're just not going to address that. And I like I could be wrong, but I feel like that could have been a better approach than trying to address, like, why we see people of color in these, you know, positions of, like, nobility, where, you know, historically, there were very, you know, it was very rare, but we did see, like, a few people of color in those kinds of positions, but not, you know, to the extent that we see it in, in the show. So, like... I don't know. I just feel like if they hadn't tried to explain it and they just left it, <laughs> then it might have been better. But I don't know how they could have, like, I don't know. <laughs> That's just my thought. I and, and this is the thing that I'm, like, stressed about for season two. Because um, mm. they're, like, putting a South Asian character on screen and, like, uh, in in this main character way. And right. I really do not know how they're going to handle it. Um, I and the thing is, they can only really give half an answer, right? Like, there's right. there's no way to like compellingly explain any of this without like fully rewriting history, and which I don't think is like the scope for the show. And also, when we look at the intent, which is like to entertain and be like kind of frivolously joyful, it's just not prepared for that either. Um, sure. So tonally, I think it's kind of inappropriate. And then the execution itself is questionable. I know there are a variety of opinions on it. And I definitely yeah. like welcome that perspective as well. Um, but I, I don't know that it is like well suited to address those critiques. Um, and I find it strange that they tried when everyone would have been perfectly happy to let them not. Right. Yeah. 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 Cause it really is just like, it's like they just give like a exposition dumped in like a few lines of dialogue and it's never addressed again. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I just feel like it was kind of clumsy, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, like it might, it might have been like completely well intentioned, but it just wasn't like, right. right. I feel like it just wasn't thought through. Yeah, I have no idea what went, what went into that process. I do know someone commented on a TikTok of mine about Bridgerton and said that they had seen like an earlier version of the script, like they work in film and TV. Um, wow. and had seen an earlier version of the script where there's like a conversation between Violet Bridgerton and uh, Lady Danbury about about the they explicitly acknowledge race. And Hmm. what that means for Daphne and Simon's relationship. Like they have a moment of like, or Lady Danbury, who is like his aunt was like, Mm -hmm. is everything like, are you fine with the fact that your like white daughter is about to marry a black man? And Violet Bridgerton says, oh yes, we're big fans of the queen. Hmm. Black in the show. (laughs) Um, that's oh an interesting thing to cut. Why would you cut yeah. that conversation? Um, and how would that have like spun the like strange three minute segment between Simon and Lady Danbury differently? 
Um, I don't know. I just, I think they made a lot of interesting choices. There's plenty of opportunity. I'm sure they'll get like the full six seasons in a movie or whatever they want. (laughs) Um, But there's plenty of opportunity to expand on that or rectify it. We'll see how much they do. Um, And also like how useful it is. Um, Yeah. But I think there are valid critiques of historical romance that like the show is just not prepared to confront in its entirety. Right. Yeah, it's more a celebration than a critique of, <laughs> well, of the best the best parts of historical romance, which is, you know, the fantasy aspect of it. And it definitely, I think it definitely gets close to getting that fantasy aspect of it right, in my opinion. I'm just so in awe of both of you <laughs> as scholars, and I just feel like I teach preschool all day. So um, I'm so in awe of both of you. I am in (laughs) awe of preschool teachers. I was just thinking this recently. My roommate is a nanny and she was like, you could nanny. And I was like, no, I couldn't. That (laughs) child would hate me. Like I'm terrible with kids. That is a skill set that I fully admire and do not possess. You would not not want to be a governess. (laughs) No, I would make a wretched governess. I'd make a governess for like a teenager, like someone who has to learn. Okay manners of the court or whatever because I think Uh that would be really fun and I also think that's the point when you like really start to teach them about like gender politics and I can definitely do that I could definitely send off my feminist into court um but I don't think I could work with children I'd be awful (laughs) I don't believe it but but yeah Anyway. Yeah, I so I read Jane Eyre when I was 16 and I like legit wanted to be a governess Aww. for like a year after that. That's so cute. <laughs> yes, I'm going to be a governess. But I also like, yeah, I was an interesting teenager. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, so I also want to talk about kind of gender and how how historical romance handles gender in general and how we see Bridgerton sort of either either kind of like leaning into how historical romance has historically shown these gender dynamics and kind of also how it might if it does break away from that in any way so i actually really loved I think this is actually from the very first video of yours Sanjana that I ever saw when you were talking about um, I think you're actually you were talking about like historical romance as sort of like a a speculative genre but then you're also talking about how um, well this is the quote um, historical romance is better at portraying the material consequences of patriarchy on women's lives than most of fiction contemporary romance included that was like the first thing I heard you say that I was like, yes, I need to be friends with this person. Yeah. So I just wondered, like, how do we see consequences of patriarchy expressed in Bridgerton, either in the books or in the TV show? Because I think we see a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is also something that you will have to cut me off. I'm really sorry. <laughs> never. I will never cut you off. <laughs> I so this is one of the things that I think historical romance is exceptionally gifted at um Mm -hmm. and I do think that it it doesn't get enough it doesn't get its flowers for the work that it does um 
But even within Bridgerton's, I think the use of women as like currency to establish mm. one's position and also the position that women in these aristocratic settings are put into to have to like forge ties with people who may or may not be good fits for them is like a such a vis- like visual representation of patriarchy and a big part of the reason why I still think these kinds of setups and like the construction of the marriage plot is like a useful vehicle for that is because the marriage plot is not really something that is like designated to bygone eras in most of the world this is still very much a reality for women and how explicit that is how explicit the currency of marriage is as like a form of social capital for women is is presented differently culturally but at least as someone who um like grew up in the U.S. my entire life but has Indian parents and like a whole family in India even the construct of the arranged marriage, which has been like rebranded and redone generation after generation and has been made more like hip and mainstream and cool or whatever, (laughs) is still very much a reflection of those same gender politics of like your objective as a woman is to ascend into marriage, at which point you have acquired a status that enables you to have more power. But also that power is fully confined by the authority of your husband and Mm -hmm. the heteronormativity of it, I think is obvious. The uh, like sort of false freedom of married life is another part of this. And I think the thing that you see really, it's, it's quite visceral in Bridgerton is Daphne's utter sense of unfulfillment. If she cannot have a child. Mm, Um, Yeah. That. I think, so something interesting about this, there's an inter- interview with Julia Quinn where she talks about the assault scene. Mm-hmm. Someone asks like a sort of roundabout question. She's like, you're asking about the assault scene. Here's mm-hmm. what I want. And she says, essentially, well, no one was really talking about this as being a consent issue in the early 2000s. And having read other books from the era, I can see why that was the case. That doesn't necessarily make it right. But I do think that was the truth for the time. Mm-hmm. And then she says, a big part of why that happens is because Daphne is it is forced to know so little of her body, but also forced to know that it is a vehicle for a child. Mm-hmm. And that is a double bind that so many women are still in. They un- like they understand and identify motherhood so easily and readily as like a core function of their femininity, but cannot actually explain their own bodies to themselves. Mm. And that double bind is so visual in Bridgerton, but I think people like to think it is designated or it's, it was left in the past. Like no one else lives like that. Now we have all like the sixties came and went, the sexual revolution happened and now women understand their bodies, which is mm. <laughs> fundamentally untrue. Right. So it's something I feel very passionate about, but like, these are, these are still material consequences for most of the earth's women, not just like American women Mm -hmm. or like women in Western countries, but like even in women here, our understanding of our bodies is so limited by like poor sex education and Mm -hmm. cultural messaging, right? So I think Mm -hmm. it's, I think Daphne is really the like key example of like how patriarchy has pushed her into committing harm. Cause she does, she commits harm. Yeah. Like, she coerces him into marriage. She assaults him 
to get pregnant. Like, and both yeah. of those things are directly attributable to her complete blindness to her relationship with her body. Mm-hmm. Right. It's really yeah. sad, but it's, I think, I think it's really astute. Also, there's this like conversation. I don't remember, know if you remember this, uh, Rhonda, <laughs> but like, there's a conversation between Violet Bridgerton and uh, Daphne where Violet's like, I don't want to talk about this. This is so improper, but like, mm-hmm. you'll take care of you. Like, you'll be fine. And also sex can be good. And right. Daphne's <laughs> like, what? And then her his, her mom who has birthed eight eight children or like a bajillion <laughs> children is like, okay, that sounds good. And she and won't then actually leaves. explain it to her. Yeah. <laughs> it's awful. But I'm like, yeah, this is still what happens every day, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also this scene between um, Eloise and Penelope where they're talking about like a woman can be pregnant or a woman can be with child without being married. What? How is that possible? Like, <laughs> like they don't like they don't understand. <laughs> too is that like the uh, the their partners relish in their innocence, and it's like mm, yeah. one of the worst parts of it all. I right. Think- for some people, it is something that like worked for them in romance. But for me, it like is genuinely upsetting to see how much these partners, like these heroes, relish in how naive their partners are to mm. their own bodies. Yeah. Um, and I think that is also still, unfortunately, a reality of like how women are expected to like present as sexual and present as interested in men but in a way that makes them oblivious to their own charms yeah you don't know you're beautiful and that's what makes you beautiful dang it one direction (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i just watched um the white lotus on hbo max um there's a so this isn't this isn't exactly like related to like women and understanding their bodies, but um, there's uh, uh, one of the couples, um, the characters in the show, um, they're a couple, and so like they've just gotten married, and the woman is um, she like comes from like a, a like lower or like middle class background, I think, and her husband, who she's just married, is from a very wealthy family. Um, and like they kind of had like a whirlwind romance and got married um so like she doesn't know him very well and so then like sorry spoilers for the white lotus if you haven't seen it but but um she kind of slowly realizes that he's not a good person um and so she is like um like she does like actually decide to leave him but then like toward the end of the season she kind of has this like realization that her life is going to be materially much better if she stays with him and so she stays with this terrible person right and I think that like I have a this connects I promise so (laughs) I think that just and like it takes place in present day so I think that just kind of shows that like this idea of women's livelihood or women's kind of sense of like identity or sense of um, sense of like security being dependent on the men around them is still very much a reality for, for many women as it, as it was, you know, 
as it often is in historical romance. So that was probably the loosest of connections, but it just popped into my head. So, <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're completely right. And that also makes me think a little bit. I haven't seen all of it, but I've only seen a few episodes, but Big Little Lies where. Oh, yeah. It's also women of like quite a bit of privilege and education mm-hmm. and money who see their like self-worth and their identities as being fundamentally tied to their statuses as mothers and wives to the point where they're willing to put up with like abusive relationships to mm-hmm. preserve that status because of right. cultural programming around their femininity, femininity yeah. and age, right? Like the, that like recurring joke of like, it's harder to find, or it's easier to be Oh my gosh. Have you guys seen Sleepless in Seattle? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's that line in Sleepless in Seattle that Nora Ephron references in a few of her movies of like, it's easier to be bombed by a terrorist than find a husband <laughs> after the age of 35. Right. Um, it's always like a joke in the movies, but I, so much of that cultural messaging around like your expiry date, your use as a person coming to lapse at a certain point yeah. makes them adhere to these relationships that are clearly not beneficial in the long run. And I guess the fantasy of historical romance and Bridgerton is that like, even if you have all of that messaging, the hope is that you will find someone who makes this like sort of horrible situation worth it. Like you will stumble Mm. into something that is good for you anyway. Um, Sure. That's what Simon is. That's what uh, like all of the books are is, is Mm -hmm. that sort of, relationship between you just need to suffer through the marriage mart but at the end of it it will be worth it Hmm. yeah it's in pride and prejudice too yeah (laughs) like it's yeah you know elizabeth says like i'm not going to marry unless it's someone that i love and then lucky her the person she loves is super rich so it works out (laughs) right yeah super, rich, super influential super hot hunk, yeah, yeah. <laughs> girl can dream well this seems like a good place to wrap up um unless anyone had any more lingering thoughts that they needed to express okay <laughs> for me all right oh. uh my brain is mush oh but we need to talk about which bridgertons we are <laughs> Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. You both <laughs> As is our tradition. <laughs> you both should go first because I'm upset about mine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm Colin. Just Are you, no. How do you feel about that? <laughs> no, thank you. But no. you but you end up with Penelope. I mean, that's that's fine, but uh, no, just no. <laughs> I will say he's extremely charming in the books. I actually like him okay. so much better in the books. He's funny, mm. he's witty, he's well traveled. You're okay. you're you're in good shoes ultimately. <laughs> okay, I'll take he's it. Done kind of dirty in season one of the show. Um, yeah, but I promise. In the books, he's like the star for me, at least for a couple okay. of books. Okay, you're good. You're golden. What um, about you, Rhonda? I'm. Well, I'm Eloise, and uh-huh. I ca- I called this like uh-huh. when I first watched the show. I was like, um, this is me, and I didn't even like I. That's like legit le- the result I got on the quiz. So I didn't like uh-huh. you know I didn't take it over and over until I got what I wanted. That's what I got the first time. So I love it. 
So that's me. I'm Eloise. And yeah. I agree. <laughs> I can see Clever, it. <laughs> resourceful. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, I got Daphne, unfortunately. (laughs) I took the quiz three times, guys. Oh no. (laughs) I was like, there's no way. This has to be a joke. Well, you're both the oldest sister, right? You're the oldest, right? Yes. Okay. I am an oldest sister through and through. So I have a feeling that's probably what it is. Okay. Um, at some point I was like, this quiz is rigged. This there's no way. Um but no, I, it seems to be decided. But I mean, I guess I get Simon, so. Yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> well, as we wrap up, so you're doing your Bridgerton read-along on your TikTok, right? I am. I am. So wait, are you just kind of doing that through videos? Are you doing lives? Or how does that work? I'm just doing TikToks. So unfortunately... Okay. <laughs> I feel like I should probably be more strategic or thoughtful about <laughs> kinds of things, but I am like a full-time grad student and a full-time yeah. employee. Um, Struggle's real. <laughs> oh, so I mostly just like squeeze in time to do TikTok stuff in between like breathing and eating and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I uh, I've just been doing like posting a TikTok every weekend leading up until um the show but people have like been saying some really interesting things in the comments um, yeah there is a wealth of discussion happening about this book series um surprisingly fertile ground and I think the goal is to finish the weekend before the new season comes out which I'm ridiculously okay. excited about because yes. I yes. want more brown girls in corsets yes yeah yeah so that's what I'm up to exciting awesome. So we can follow you on TikTok. Are you on any other socials that you want to plug or? Um, I have a newsletter Just... called Scrap oh, okay. Paper. Um, but that's like more of a casual thing. I actually not nothing really to plug. I'm just okay. happy to be here. <laughs> just excited. I'm there with you. Well, thank you so much again yeah. for for talking with us. This is like such such a delight to actually get to chat with you in like in real time oh my gosh right back at you I am so Uh, glad that we got to do this I feel like I never get to have conversations like this live because I'm always like recording and posting and also uh none of my friends here like read historicals apparently it's like not fashionable for 25 or 24 year olds to be reading historical romances what I'm like that's ridiculous guys (laughs) (laughs) So I'm glad we got well, we should do like a we could do like a joint live on TikTok sometime. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah. Absolutely. And Aaron, you'd have to you'll have to get a TikTok account so you can watch it. <laughs> to quote Tina Fey, I'll be the lady at home who watches it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh goodness. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We will see all of our li- well, not see. We will. <laughs> we will we'll catch up them. with all of our <laughs> listeners next week. Thank you again to Semjana. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.